The House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. We've discovered the world's best craftsmen and techniques. Using materials native to the region and tools accustomed to individual craftsmen, we strive for perfection every step of the way. With all of this, you'll see the details of your own story, the story of a life well-crafted. This is the story Craft tells. Welcome to the House of Roll. The promise of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? This is my Populism with a purpose. Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician, and she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. And welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. It's Cinco de Mayo. So whether you're a Mexican-American, a Jimmy Buffett fan, or just ready for a little Sunday fun, today, everybody lives in Margaritaville. I know I do. But before the drinking, and in my case, the moving, there are a whole lot of people in politics and the media whose purpose is to inflame your passions rather than to reason with you. My purpose is different. I've come to inform you, to give you information that will enable you to make an independent judgment on current events and to encourage you to act on that judgment. And there's certainly lots of opportunity right now to act on that judgment. I'm a businesswoman, not a politician, so I always start with the numbers. It's a booming number this week. That's that booming number, that Big boom is the economy. The April payroll grew by an enormous, unexpected, cracking 263,000 new jobs. The unemployment rate is down to 3.6%. The revisions to the last two months show that there were 16,000 more jobs created than were counted in February and March despite all the bad weather. That's one heck of a jobs report. That's an economy that just keeps on ticking, no matter what the licking. And I'm sorry to anybody who remembers John Swayze, I kind of borrowed that, but not perfectly. And then there are a bunch of other numbers we should talk about this week. Can you imagine there are 21 Democratic candidates for the presidency and counting? Joe Biden was out of the starting gate with a commanding 35% lead in Democratic polls on Friday. And the first two debates among the Democrats are already scheduled for June 2019, a full 18 months before the election. I guess that's to help Cory Booker decide that he really wants to run for re-election to the Senate from New Jersey. 10,000. That's the number of false or misleading statements the president has made since inauguration date, according to the Wall Street, uh, the, I'm sorry, <laughs> the Washington Post. Big difference there. 6.45 a.m. 
That's the time I turned the TV on on Wednesday morning to watch Attorney General William Barr split participles and infinitives. It was like diagramming sentences, and I do, it's going to be a confession of age, but I do remember how to diagram a sentence. 65 to 1. Those are the odds that Country Horse would win the Kentucky Derby. It's a historic first. But let's take a moment to really talk about that jobs report. Because if I were President Trump, or if I were um, Miss Conway, and I were advising President Trump, I would stop tweeting about anything except the economy. I mean, I'd start everybody's day with a rainbow every morning because we are in record territory. Nine out of 10 would-be Democratic nominees were not even born the last time the United States saw unemployment at 3.6% because that was in 1968. And that is before my memory of things like the jobs report. The Dow Jones is hovering at record levels. And so is the S&P, I know, because I watch it every day. Uber is scheduled to go public before the end of June. And the market, the market is breathless with anticipation for new highs for the NASDAQ. The economy grew by 3.2% in the first quarter of the year. That is almost twice what the analysts and the Congressional Budget Office had anticipated. 55% of recently polled voters gave the president good marks for the economy. And yes, deregulation has helped, but, you know, deregulation has to be smart. Can't just pretend that we don't need regulation. It has to be smart, and it has to be supportive of both maintaining uh, corp- you know, existing corporate growth and encouraging entrepreneurship. And, and to that end, the corporate tax cut has had some impact. But remember that corporations don't really pay taxes. The people who buy their products and services pay those taxes. So that tax cut is helping in an indirect way to stim because it's controlling prices and so forth to stimulate consumer spending. And consumer spending is 80% of our economy because, in fact, lower prices mean people have more money to buy more things. And the global market and a relatively stable dollar have certainly helped. China's internal credit issues, et cetera, have certainly helped um, our economy to maintain and continue to grow. And now they're talking about a $2 trillion infrastructure plan. That would be a further boost to the economy. Over a 10-year period, that boost would probably be worth about $8 trillion in economic activity. Can you imagine that? What that would do in terms of employment opportunities and rising wages and so forth? Um, And even if we begin to see the slowdown that everybody is, every conservative economist is predicting because of the length of this particular uh, recovery from 2008, Um, And 2009, people are saying, oh, well, by the end of the year, we may be down to 1% growth. Well, that $2 trillion economic stimulus, that $2 trillion infrastructure plan 
would, over the next several years, even in that worst case scenario, maintain a stable economy. And so, you know, it would be a wonderful thing for um, for all of us. And think of infrastructure in a in the broader sense, because two trillion dollars is not enough. And that brings us to the thorny part of this issue. How the heck are we going to pay for it? I've been noodling on that one for a while. Um, I am going to put a blog together that, that talks about here are some really valid funding options. The thing that we ought to do, um, because we need in order to do this big infrastructure project, and the president and Nancy and Chuck are only talking about transportation, whether it's highways, railways, or airplanes and airports. And we need to do so much more in terms of our infrastructure than just repairing roads and bridges and building new runways. So we need a stable source of money. Uh, For example, um, funding to rebuild our um, air traffic control system to modernize it, it's 20 years out of date compared to the rest of the world is currently on a year-to-year funding basis. Now, that's a crazy way to run a, to upgrade an air traffic control system when if you've ever looked at the map of the number of airplanes that are in the air over the United States at any given time, you would be truly concerned uh, that our air traffic controllers need a modern system. But again, building that system has been on a year-to-year funding basis for the last 10 years. So there's been no real commitment. And at this point, the technology that would have been current 10 years ago is no longer current. So part of this big effort on infrastructure has to include a stable source of funding outside of, you know, you can use user fees to be repay bonds, but somehow you've got to come up with a stable funding source, and I believe that is some form of an infrastructure bank. So stay tuned. I I really, you know, have been, um, I've been thinking about it, researching it, and I'm going to try to write it in a thousand words or less. Um, But in the meantime, um, I think that when you talk, when the president and, and Nancy and Chuck remember that Mitch McConnell was not present um, at this meeting. When when they left the White House, it was the president was going to talk think about some funding sources. Well, when you're running a trillion dollar a year deficit in your budget already, that funding source means either come up with new money or you got to cut something else. So I'm not holding my breath that we'll get this passed this year. But it's a laudable goal for an economy that is right now burning on every cylinder. And we are, should be truly excited about that. But that brings us to an interesting question. Vince is looking at me waiting to know what that interesting question is. That interesting question is, with such a great economy, with a president who has such great approval numbers on that economy... And you know people vote their pocketbook. They vote how they feel when they walk into the polling booth or sit down at their desk to fill out their mail-in ballot if they live in California, Oregon, or Washington, where 90% of us vote by mail. We don't need a holiday. 
But in the meantime, with all that good news, how can there be 21 Democrats and counting who want to challenge President Trump for the job? You know, it it amazes me that there are 21 people and counting whose egos are large enough to assume that they are presidential material. I mean, it's craziness. And with the announcement this week by Joe Biden and Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado, that field actually grew to 21 this week. You know, that's more than, uh, you know, they've scheduled, as I said, the first debate between the Democratic candidates for two nights at the end of June. You know, after school's out and just before the 4th of July holiday. So, you know, I can just imagine that 100 million people, she says facetiously, are going to tune in on June, I think it's 25th and 26th. Don't make the book on those dates, but I think that's when it is. And now that they're 21, they can't figure out, well, what are they going to do? Because you won't have equal numbers on, uh, on debate day one and debate day two. And they're going to draw, draw lots to see who gets on which stage. Um, we're being very democratic, small d democratic. Um, and it, it will be an, in, an incredibly interesting um, debate, I'm sure. And that's just the good news for President Trump. There are so many that it's hard for any one of them to really distinguish themselves. Yes, you can have a moment. Kamala Harris certainly had a moment this week, but it's not clear that that moment will translate into momentum when you are 18 months out from an election. And on that note, we're going to go take a quick commercial break, and then we're going to come back and talk about the Democratic field for a minute, because it's time to have some fun. You're listening to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back. And we got to have some fun. 21 Democrats whose egos are larger than a building, than a good-sized building. Um, And I wish I could take credit for that, but that was um, uh, Garrett Haig on NBC talking about Beto. Uh, standing outside of a major um, of City Hall in San Diego. And that's a big building. <laughs> um, but are those egos still the smaller combined than Trump's ego, though? Um, with bait with Beto, I, I got to say they might be evenly matched. Really? You think Beto O'Rourke has a big ego? I think the man lives in a fantasy land, to be honest. He's a preppy who didn't grow up. You know, for all the buzz about him, all the money that was collected in his run, he could not beat the most unpopular man in the United States Senate. And it wasn't even that they had to go count the provisional ballots. It was a three or four point loss. I mean, he had a huge financial advantage. He's just all charm, but there's nothing there. He had to go tour Yosemite this week to to be uh, to get into his climate change groove. I go to Yosemite to be inspired too. 
but in a different way. It so wasn't about who, communing so, with it wasn't about communing with nature. It was about filling the bloody valley with his wonderfulness. And and trust me, Yosemite Valley does not need Beto to be wonderful. So who do you think uh, in this field uh, has a chance against Biden. Trump? I think Biden. The numbers are there. It's what we're going to talk about um, in the next 10 minutes. But um, the president's been tweeting a lot about Biden, and there's a reason for it. So, you know me, it's by the numbers. Let's look at those numbers. Okay. And let's look at some of those crazy ideas that are driving those numbers. I mean, half of the field is trying to yank the Democrats to the left, whether it's the governor of Washington state who's running on climate change uber alles, or Elizabeth Warren with all of her possible her policy papers, including free college and forgiving everybody's student loans. You have to understand that that federal student loan program that was created in 2009, they stuck that into the Obamacare bill so that the interest earned on those loans was part of the cost of the of the revenue source to fund um, uh, Obamacare so that they could pass it under reconcil- budget reconciliation. It's a wonderful idea on paper, but, you know, it does not stand alone. It's part of a, of a web. And then there's also single-payer health care. You want to see Nancy Pelosi turn absolutely ashen, mention, mention single-payer health care or Medicare for all in her presence. You know, we are 10 years away from Medicare as it is not being fully funded unless we do something Congress does something rapidly, okay? Um, but, um, and and the same is true of Social Security in your and my lifetimes, let alone our children's. So, you know, um, income, you know, th- this idea that we can expand these social programs without also expanding everybody's ta- and tax base because you look at Scandinavia or you look at Finland or you look at Germany or you look at France. You remember that in 1945, all those economies were in ashes. They had no economy. We called it the Marshall Plan. And so those people from zero built economies that have some of these government-sponsored programs. But they built those economies with a tax base at zero in order to pay for those things. We didn't do that. We have at this point uh, a 70 plus percent of GDP debt. Our debt is out of control, running at 25 percent of the federal budget. That debt, according to the CBL, will grow to 92% of GDP, of the, of the gross domestic product. And that even assumes things like this trillion, $2 trillion um, infrastructure project could get off the ground. But that assumes 92 to 93% um, uh, debt to GDP at the rate we are running. So when you talk about income inequality... Um, it means, as my mom said about Johnson's war on poverty, <gasps> he's going to make us all equally poor. It was one of my mother's most clarion, um political moments. Um, 
there are some people who are talking about a basic living wage. I mean, in Western Georgia or Western Pennsylvania and Central California, those are two very different numbers. That, that's not something that Congress can fix, if Congress could fix anything. And then there are another, there are another couple of people, including an uh, entrepreneur by the name of Yang, who are talking about universal basic income. And Niall Ferguson and I agree on that score. Work is more than just wages. It plays a huge role in shaping a person's identity. Thus, you see in coal country, in steel country, in the Rust Belt, these incredible rates of drug addiction. I mean, it's a way to kill the pain, folks, of feeling unproductive and, and perhaps unnecessary. And so you can't talk about, uh, about a universal basic income unless you talk about giving people's lives meaning, how to be the head of a family, etc., There's a relationship between our declining stable marriage rates and uh, people's economic insecurities. So in in Stockton, they're talking about a universal basic income of $600. And I I did promise uh, Vince that I would go explore that uh, further, and I will when I get time. And $1,000 a month, as Yang is proposing, which, by the way, he would later debit from your Social Security payout— doesn't make much of a difference. And if you and how are you going to pay for it, folks? All this talk about taxing the wealthy. Well, here's a fact that they're not going to like. If we taxed the top 1%, you know, an asset tax, if we tax them 100% of their assets, it's only about $3 trillion, so it would only pay for 75% of one year of U.S. government spending, and then Congress would have nothing left to tax the next year. It sounds good in a 10-second soundbite, but it's BS. And I almost said those words. Ah, caught myself just in time. So as I said, the CBO expects current spending levels to push national debt to 93% of GDP by 20. 29. And that does not even account for fixing Social Security and Medicare, who are in serious fiscal danger as early as 2023-24, right around the corner. That affects some people in this listening audience. So, and what is the reason, what's the principal reason for that increase of debt to GDP over the next decade? Interest on the debt. So the more we go into debt, the more debt we accumulate. It's not different for people than it is for than it is for countries. You know, look at your own checking account. And the other half of the field is trying to sound the other half of the democratic field is just trying to sound woke, but it's hearkening back to the good old days when the AFL-CIO ruled the country, not the SEIU. And that's the bad news. And that's the bad news in the April report. Manufacturing saw the smallest gains of any segment. And maybe that's why Joe Biden broke out of the pack so quickly. Joe Biden is a moderate in life, in fiscal policy, in foreign policy. And he knows how to legislate. And he respects the constitutional balance of power. And you know what? 
is a genuinely nice, affable person. You just feel good. It's like 2000 again, when what the American people wanted was a little normalcy after all that chaos, and we gotta go and take a break. Now, back to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy on 860 AM, The Answer. And we're back. Still talking about these 21 candidates. So I think it's, you know, I think there's, I think Joe Biden's emergence is, it's like, it's like a warm sweater on a cold night. It just makes you feel good. Now, whether or not that's sustainable, heck, nobody knows. Unless you believe in um, an omnipresent God. And then... Only he or she would, only she would know. Anything can happen between now and November of next year. But there is a reason, there is a reason that there are 21 Democratic candidates, 21 people, and 20 of them had hoped with all their hearts that Biden would stay out, but 21 people with ambition and different levels of experience and different types of experience. So why, with a booming economy and a president with great economic uh, approval numbers, would 21 people want to go through this meat grinder called a presidential campaign? You know, usually when an incumbent president's running for for a second term, um, it's not your A game, your A list of people who come out um, in the opposition party. And maybe some of this... 21 people field is auditioning for 2024. But there's a reason that 21 people have jumped in and and are raising millions and millions and millions of dollars. And that's because they can read the polls. And what they find right now is that a generic Democrat, a generic Democrat beats President Trump 92 to 5, 92% to 5%. Okay, that's the average of all the polls. And that really scares me that the generic Democrat does so well, because I think three fourths of the candidates who are running for the Democratic nomination lack the requisite experience to be president. I mean, I think Mayor Pete is just an adorable human being, and I think he's he's sincere. I think he's smart as a whip. Um, I think he has a great future in politics, but from mayor of a city of 100,000 to commander in chief of the biggest and most potent army on earth and an econo- and an economy booming but de- but a government deeply in debt um, is not a place for on the job training i believe we've had two presidents who have proved to us that experience in governing matters and in fact the two previous presidents who had both been governors still stumbled in some areas quite badly and we are paying for those stumbles today but the comment you know experience itself is a subject for another day today the important number is and again i'm going to remind you that we are 18 months out from the election and anything can happen but today today May the 5th, that number climbs up to 95% to 3 
8%. Biden beats Trump when you combine all the polls. That's a horrible number for the incumbent president. And that is not because he hasn't contributed to it. I mean, those poll numbers are a reflection of the electorate's attitude toward the president. In 2016, he ran better than Hillary Clinton because she was so much more unpopular personally. Her personality doesn't do well on television. People say, she, I've never met her. Um, she, people say she's warm and charming. Wow, does that not come across on television? It also does not come across if, I don't know if Elizabeth Warren is warm and charming, but boy, I can tell you, that does not come across on television. But the president's continuing continuing to tweet about and focus back on Hillary and lock her up and all that kind of stuff has actually rehabilitated Hillary to the point where she and Bill can go out and give a lecture and get people to pay $750 a ticket just to be in the same room with them and listen to them chat with one another. And, and for, for Joe Biden, those numbers are reversed. Biden's absence from the public scene, the grace with which he managed uh, a, an incredible um, loss of his oldest son, um, and and has been and you know an interested and um, and uh, participatory member of society and you know has worked on you know charity and and building a uh, government school at the University of Pennsylvania and at working with the Constitution Center etc. Um, has has overcome some of the negatives that we saw at the end of the Obama administration. So I expect that Biden's numbers will go up and they will go down. And, the, but, and at the same time, the president's poll numbers are a result of his behavior and his decisions. And so he controls how those poll numbers go. And the focus on the base is problematic for his reelection because it's a shrinking number and the number of independents is growing. And we saw the influence of that in the 2018 midterms. And we're, you know, it's, it's most Americans believe in climate science, not in AOC's version, but there is widespread acceptance and concern and a sense that the president should take the issue seriously when in fact he dismisses it. You can't dismiss it. Just look at the Arctic. Most Americans believe in compromise and consensus. And that's something the last two Congresses have been unable to muster. And there's a lot of blame on both sides. And again, talking about that blame and how to overcome it is a subject for another day. But the president's never been, never been comfortable with the legitimacy of his unexpected win in 2016. His exaggeration of the inauguration numbers, his constant need for validation, nepotism in the White House. Ivanka and Jared are just not trusted by or popular with the American people. And the issue of forcing 
top-secret security clearances through for them only adds to the, pub, the, the public angst, the constantly shifting staff, the president's personalization of government, my generals. Oh, God, Joe Biden's going to have fun with that line. My generals. Those generals do not consider themselves to be his generals. They're America's generals. Their concern is not for the White House. It's for the American people. It's for the troops they manage and supervise and lead, God forbid us, into a battle. They care about individual lives. They're not the president's generals. And it just, you know, somebody who's been close to a number of career military people, um, it, it just, it rankles you. The best people have mostly left government and are on cable television these days. But thank God for Dan Coates and Christopher Ray, who continue to tell truth to power. And we'll talk about that when we get back. Now, back to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy on 860 AM, The Answer. And we're back with the president's poll numbers. Those poll numbers are concerning. As I said when we left, thank God for Dan Coats and Christopher Ray, who continue to tell truth to power. They were just at Congress um, talking about what they need to defend the 2020 uh, presidential election. And that, that's one of those legislative accomplishments that the president does not have. He has only one, only one, count them one presidential accomplishment through legislation, and that is the Tax Reform Act. And that Tax Reform Act is is going to get eaten away at by things like his infrastructure project. Executive orders are not laws. And it's not President Trump's fault. This started, you know, way back in 2010 when um, the Tea Party rose up Um, against um, what they saw as Obama's profligate spending and the Republicans retook the House. Um, And the president said then and in 2012 when the Senate went um, red, um, well, I still have a phone and my pen. And he did a lot of things, including DACA, by executive order, which is why it continues to be an issue because... If one president signs an, an executive order that says two and two is four, the next president can come along and say, no, that's fuzzy math. Two and two, and two really is 4.111 to infinity or four point, or five. And it would be, that would be the new, the new valid, um, legis, uh, it's not legislation, but the new valid regulation or deregulation. And in four years, another president could reverse that and say, no, two and two really is four, and so on and so forth. If it is not passed by both houses of Congress and signed by the president into law, it is not a law. And there are bloody many of those that need to get passed on infrastructure, on hardening our um, cyber um, networks and our and our cyber defenses, and we'll be talking about that next week. But um, it is um, it 
health care. Everybody was promised great health care, and yet there's been not a single piece of legislation on drug pricing, on any of the peripheral issues that could be handled without dismantling the Affordable Care Act. Um, There's been no legislative uh, progress, despite Secretary Azar's able efforts to get some drug um, regulation passed. And certainly there's been enough law enforcement activity around uh, the epidemic of opiates that Congress should be able to pass some legislation there. But they can't. There should be new regulation around how a president declares a national emergency. But (laughs) not in this Congress. And that's frustrating the American people. And it is the president's job to bring the Republicans and the Democrats together and say, I'm here to represent the American people. So let's find consensus. Let's create a compromise. Let's move forward on behalf of the American people. That is, you know, the power belongs to us, not to them under the Constitution. And so that brings me to the Mueller report. It's not over, folks. Mueller is tentatively scheduled as of this morning to speak to the House Judicial Committee on May 15th. And so he's going to clarify something that when you don't establish that the Trump campaign and the Russians conspired to game the elections, it doesn't mean that there isn't evidence. It means that there is not evidence that a federal prosecutor and federal prosecutors don't lose in court. And there's a reason they don't lose in court. They don't take a case to court. They don't make an indictment unless they are positive that they can prove beyond any reasonable doubt the guilt of the um, of, of the perpetrator, of, of the accused, okay? And so while there's evidence, there is evidence in the first half of the Mueller report of Russian efforts, one, the, the indicted Russian efforts that we all know about are carefully laid out, but there is also evidence of a number of um, uh, Russian outreach and um with with positive reception on the part of the campaign. Now, I don't think that it ever went beyond communication, but there are absolutely proven nefarious activities on the part of Russia that were aimed, as Putin has said, at swaying the election, whether it was hacking, stealing emails, posting those emails, giving them to WikiLeaks, creating social media campaigns. We've talked about this stuff before, and the woman who was just convicted for trying to infiltrate the NRA, um, who's doing another nine months in jail, and then they'll deport her to Russia. And, and yet when the president talked to Putin this week, he downplayed, he downplayed those efforts, when in fact... He should have taken the high ground. You want to improve your poll numbers? You want to do better in 2020? You got to be able to say, Russia, if you do it again, you think the sanctions on you now are tough? You try. 
you just try, especially now that we found you actually hacked into a county election system in Florida. We found the penetration. Thank you, FBI. If I were the president, I would be pounding on the table and saying, Putin, if you do it again, I double dare you. We'll sanction you from here to kingdom come. But instead, the president quoted Putin as saying, oh, see, the Mueller report made a mountain into a molehill. That's not what it did. And people, people react to that. Russia is, is an existential threat to the United States. Yes, it would be nice if we could eliminate that, but it's a fact. Ask the Navy. They're meeting them in the Arctic Circle. Ask the Ukrainians. And as to the 13 potential instances of obstruction of justice, six of those were proved evidentiarily, so that's about 42%, and four or about uh, a third of them are proven on all three elements. There is evidence, there is a nexus, and there is proof of intent. And when the president has a chance to use the report, as I said, to, to warn Putin off, he didn't do it. A day, he didn't do it. A day after Christopher Ray, speaking in New York, asked a question, said again that if we thought 2016 was bad and 2018 was bad, it was just a dress rehearsal for what the Russians intend to do in 2020. And yet the president did not use the 440-page report to pound Putin on the head. And we'll be back in just a second with a couple of closing thoughts. Now, back to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy on 860 AM, The Answer. Uh, last Wednesday, when the attorney general told the Senate he didn't see a problem with a lobbyist being paid by a foreign governor, government volunteering, quote unquote, for an American presidential campaign, I suspect that Christopher Ray's head literally exploded. So how bad was this week? How bad was Barr's performance for the president's reelection possibilities? Well, Lindsey Graham who went on television on Wednesday pounding the desk about this, you know, investigation, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Thursday, he sent a letter of invitation directly to Mueller. He bypassed the Justice Department, went directly to Mueller and said, you know, if you'd like to come and talk to us, we'd really like it if you would do that. And then you remember how he was going to investigate the FISA warrants? Well, what did he finally do? He asked Chief Justice Roberts to take a look at the FISA rules and whether anything was violated, which means we will never, ever hear another word about it. And we're out of time. So let me say next week, Dan Trimble will be here to talk about cyber threats and how you can protect yourself as well as your nation. Uh, the week after that, it will be Mark Kerkorian from the Center of Immigration Studies. The week after that, I'm going to try to get a couple of friends of mine who are actually Venezuelans to tell us what's happening on the ground in Venezuela. And in the meantime, happy Cinco de Mayo. You can find us at reimagineamerica.org. Have a wonderful week. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.